All right, everybody, I'm really excited for this next guest. He happens to be another idol of mine. And as everyone knows, who's been an avid listener of the podcast, I've taken a lot of heat over the past four years for being an advocate of crypto and blockchain, wearing t-shirts on stage, and just having my co-host there bust me, as well as most of my friends, rolling their eyes and saying, uh, it's crazy internet money. Now, it's on the rise again, and there's a bigger, better, badder thesis for it being an alternate source of asset protection, especially with all that's been going on. So I'm really excited to have, like I said, one of my idols on. His name is Anthony Pompliano, and he goes by the name of Pomp on Twitter. Twitter is a space where, you know, a lot of these conversations go down. But anyway, Pomp was in Facebook from the years 2014 to 15. He then moved on to be a managing partner, basically a capital, you know, uh, was an early stage venture capital firm, which was then acquired by Morgan Creek Digital Assets. So Pomp is a big influencer, probably the biggest influencer, in my opinion, in the space of blockchain and cryptocurrencies as a big voice has a massive Twitter following, has tons going on, as you can imagine, with the rise of all these legendary investors now changing their mind about it. His time is precious right now, so I'm really excited to um, have him. He's been on CNBC, CNN, conversations with just all sorts of people, all sorts of people. So anyway, I hope you really enjoy this podcast. Greg and I had a fun time doing it, and without further ado, pump. All right, Pomp, welcome to the show. We've given you a great intro, and uh, our community is excited to have you. As, a, as an avid follower and uh, of you for many years now, it's, uh, you're probably the biggest name as I've introduced you to others in, our, in, our, in Craig and my network, probably the smartest mind, in my opinion. And, I, and I've listened to a lot of Bitcoin people, a lot of crypto people, the smartest mind, and definitely the most forward-thinking. And I think you give the clearest explanation of... Bitcoin at a macro level, like why it's something to consider in today's day and age. So welcome to the Bulletproof Dental Practice Podcast. Thanks for coming on. Again. You've made it, Pomp. You've, you've made got, it, you've, Pomp. How far have you come that you get a, you're on a dental podcast? This is podcast. the crescendo of your career. This is it. Congratulations. It's I thought I peaked in high school and now here I am. So I feel like I'm just improving. <laughs> Multiple peaks in life, Pop. This could be, hopefully this is not, I mean, I just want to tell the listener, if you don't know who Anthony Pompliano is, it's okay, but he's a real big deal. No one will say that. I'm just going to get it out there. So it's an honor to have you here. And uh, don't don't tune this out, dental people. This is, uh, Peter's been busting my chops for years. And I've, I've literally made fun of him. He's wearing a Bitcoin t-shirt as we talk. He wore one, two, three years ago. And I literally made fun of him. And finally, I've had to eat a lot of crow. I'm like, okay, Peter, I'm sorry, but how, how do I how do I do this thing? Not so, only have you um, eaten crow, but you've you've become a, a, a nice uh, disciple, and you've actually deployed a lot of your wealth into it as a as an investment thesis. Yes, so yes. proud of you, buddy. I'm proud of you. I Thank beat you, you like the like Chinese water treatment. I just kept dropping drops on you. Yeah, and you did torture me, and you still torture me, by the way. I, I do. So. Anyway, Pomp, we will uh, we will get out of the way, and where I would love to take this is, I was saying before we hit record, you know, you're in the space, this is your life, but a lot of our listeners maybe are getting exposure, maybe this is their first time. So, can you talk about Bitcoin as a macro, and just kind of go through all the things you talk about when you're on CNBC or CNN, and just and just talking at that at that level, if you wouldn't mind? Yeah, I, I think you know most of the questions people have are just like, first of all, what is Bitcoin? Right, let's just start there, and the way that I talk about it is it's just a digital currency. And for most people in the developed Western world, you use some version of electronic or digital money today. So you don't actually have a ton of cash. 
You don't walk around with, you know, change in your pocket. You're pretty much using either your credit cards or you are using some sort of uh, debit card um, or you're sending wires. Like all of this stuff is done through a digital interface. When you pull back, what that means is you're using technology to move around units of account, right? Which is just a uh, currency. And that currency all resides under a monetary policy of the US dollar. And so that monetary policy has a lot of similarities with other fiat currencies around the world, right? You've got an inflationary currency, meaning that they're continuously creating more and, and uh, increasing it. You've got a um, kind of human-led decision-making process, meaning that there are uh, central bankers that are going to take the data and information, they're going to synthesize it, and then they're going to make decisions around interest rates and quantitative easing. And then what you basically have is you have uh, very little transparency, actually, into how much money is being created today, uh, how much money is being taken out of circulation, things like that. And so that, that's the system that we live in. And frankly, in the United States, it's done pretty well, right? If you think about the U.S. dollar still the global reserve currency, there hasn't been hyperinflation. There it hasn't been some great kind of global financial system collapse or anything like that. What Bitcoin really does is Bitcoin takes all of that and it flips this on its head. Right, it literally 180 degree difference and says, well, what happens if instead of having an inflationary currency, we have a deflationary structured currency, meaning that there's only 21 million that will ever be available. Uh, we're going to slowly put that into the system through the kind of daily incoming supply, but over time that gets cut down until we've got all 21 million out in uh, kind of circulating supply. We're gonna have a programmatic monetary policy, meaning that there's no human decision-making. It is a set rigid monetary policy that is run by a computer. That computer's code cannot be changed unless more than 51% of people agree. Um, and at that point, you know, at this point, that would literally be tens of millions of people. And on top of that, everything's gonna be fully transparent. So because it is uh, this technological system, you can literally go and see how many Bitcoin are being created today. You can see how many Bitcoin have uh, changed hands today. You can see pretty much every single data point that you would ever want to know. And so the reason why I lay it out as there's kind of fiat currencies uh, monetary policy and there's this Bitcoin monetary policy is what we're seeing slowly be built is two separate worlds. And I'll call one kind of the legacy world and one the new world. And, and I use that very specific language because to me, that's literally what they are. One is an antiquated model and the other is kind of the futuristic model. And so that antiquated model, again, it's done very well up until now, but as we saw earlier this year with COVID and, and the government responses, we live in an economy that is addicted to monetary stimulus. The economy will not survive unless we manipulate interest rates and we print more money. And so what ends up happening in that system is when they print more and more money, you get very, very high levels of inflation. Now, the official inflation numbers will show 1.2, 1.5, 1.8, 2.0, right? And so we don't ever get, you know, eight, nine, 10% inflation in the official number. In the unofficial numbers, though, there's a lot of data that shows that actually certain percentages of the US population live with more than 10% inflation. Because the thing when it comes to inflation, one of the misnomers is that everyone experiences the same level of inflation. And that's not true, right? And so basically, if you almost think of it as breaking the US population into buckets of 20%, so top 20%, the next 20%, all the way to the bottom 20%, the bottom 40%, the two bottom buckets, coming out of the 2008-2009 crisis, there was a lot of analysis done where they might have been living with anywhere between 6 to 10% inflation because they experience higher levels of inflation than, let's say, the richest people in the world. Now, why is that? 
It literally is just because the rich have an education around personal finance that the poor do not, right? And I use rich and poor as kind of this polarizing view of the world, but really it's an educated versus uneducated. And what I mean by that is there's not anyone who's rich who just leaves all of their money sitting in a bank account, right? They invest their assets, they grow their money. And what that does is it insulates them from those uh, high inflation levels, right? So they actually experience very low inflation because as the dollar is being devalued, their investable assets are increasing in price, right? If you draw a line since the 70s to today in the stock market, it's basically a 45 degree angle straighten up, uh, you know, straight to the right. Well, that's not because the stock market is necessarily getting more valuable. It's because they're just devaluing the dollar. Because oh, if yeah. you take that same stock market and you denominate it in gold, the stock market is down since the 70s. So you start to think about this and so you say, look, all we're watching is asset prices increasing over a long period of time because the dollar is being devalued. So like first step is if you're going to just exist in the traditional world, literally just put your money in investable assets and hold it for a really long period of time and it's going to go up in value, right? Because they're devaluing the currency that's denominated in. But what that then brings is, well, what's happening to the bottom 40 or 50%? And ultimately what we're seeing is that wealth inequality gap is getting worse and worse. And so the rich are getting richer, the poor are getting poorer. But the bottom 50% of Americans live paycheck to paycheck. They can't come up with $400 emergency payment and they have no investable assets. They own no stocks, no uh, anything. And so when you look at that, what you see is as more and more money gets printed, we're literally just degrading their purchasing power. We're stealing wealth from the bottom 50% and we're enriching the top 50%. Now, that's not a bug of the system. That is a feature. The system is working exactly as designed. There is a financial incentive for you to get out of cash, right? That's why you either buy things, like they literally have inflation so that you will buy things and velocity of money will continue, or you invest and you own assets and, and they go up in value. That system is getting worse and worse with the bottom 50%, so there's more pain. Along comes Bitcoin and Bitcoin says, well, why do we have to live in a world where consumerism or consumption is the law of the land, right? That, that why are we forcing people to do this? What would happen if instead people could simply just say, you don't have to be a professional investor, right? You don't have to go be a dentist and be world-class at what you do for a living and then go home and also be a professional investor in order just to protect your wealth. And so if you go back to kind of, um, you know, centuries ago, you could literally just save, let's say, gold or other types of uh, things that acted as money, and you could just save them. And over time, you would just accumulate more and more and more of this, and you would grow your wealth, but you didn't have to be a professional investor. You didn't have to grow the, the currency that you got because it wasn't being devalued away. And so that's basically what Bitcoin does is Bitcoin says, look, you can simply just hold this asset and because there's a fixed supply as demand for it increases, the US dollar price will continue to increase. Uh, it's going to be volatile. There's a lot of price discovery going on. But if you look at this over a long time horizon, it is probably going to be one of the best performing assets over the next 10 to 20 years. It was the best performing asset for the last 10 years, right? And so I think that will only continue. And so what it does is it drastically simplifies investing or wealth building for people, right? You know, I know a lot of dentists, they own a lot of real estate, right? And why do they own a lot of real estate? Because it's a hard asset they can hold. And it's kind of, I make a lot of money in my income, right? I have a high earning potential on the income side. And then I'm going to get rich slow by just owning assets. And I'm going to grow that over time. Bitcoin is the exact same thing. It's just done in a digital or a virtual world. And I think what you're starting to see is over the first 10 years, it was basically just individuals. Like literally it grew into about a $300, $350 billion asset just simply by individuals buying it and kind of driving the price up. 
Now what you're seeing, those institutions are waking up to this. And now you're starting to see everyone from the mass mutuals to the Guggenheims, you know, to Fidelity, all the way down the line, everyone's saying, wait a second, I need to own some of this. And when those guys show up, they're showing up with hundreds of millions, if not billions of dollars. And they're basically now just, again, what am I willing to pay to own this asset? If everyone wants the asset and it's a fixed supply, the US dollar price continues to go up. And so, you know, it, I think that what we're really looking at here is two parallel financial systems. In the legacy system, the dollar is the unit of account and kind of that base world currency. In this new system that is technology enabled, Bitcoin is the unit of account and it's currently serving as the world currency in that world. Do we have coexistence? Does one end up trumping the other? Does one fail? All that stuff's up for debate, but I, I don't think that we necessarily need kind of the doomsday scenario to play out in order for both the legacy system to continue to uh, exist and also have kind of this Bitcoin and digital world, you know, grow a lot in value and, and become much more popular globally. One of the things that, that you've always said on your podcast is, look, even if you don't agree with it, it, it's just nice to have some exposure, just get off zero. And that was kind of one of your tenants that, that stuck with me as listening to your podcast. I was already a firm believer long before hearing that, just, but it was a nice thing. And it was kind of like, I tell people it's like double zero if you play roulette. Like what if just in case you need to get some exposure, you have a lot on the numbers, but you forget about double zero. And what if all of a sudden you wake up and now it's too expensive for you to aggregate one? And I think that's changed. That was kind of my my thoughts back in 2017 when the conversation was, oh, it could go to zero. And I was like, okay, it could. It very could go to zero, but it also could go to a million. And here's what I would say, right? So like th there's definitely the, I'll call it the gambler's mentality where there's some people who are just purely speculating. They uh -huh. say, hey, I want to put, you know, one or 2% of my wealth in. And if I bought a lottery ticket, like, oh my God, this would be amazing. I'll buy a house, right? Or I'll send my kid to college or, or whatever. Uh -huh. I tend to shy away a little bit from that because my general investing thesis is very much long-term time horizons and asymmetric payoffs, kind of this like Austrian investing style. Can you um, describe that? I think that's brilliant too, like the asymmetric risk of it. Can you, can, yeah. I, can you describe what so, that means? So here's hard numbers. Over the last five years, if you had a 60-40 global portfolio, you basically would have returned about 7.2% annual. Pretty good return, kind of you know, steady eddy right down the fairway, 7.2%. If you had taken half a percent of your allocation to stocks, so now you had 59.5% in stocks and half a percent in Bitcoin. And then in your bond portfolio, rather than have 40%, you had 39.5% putting half a percent from there in Bitcoin. So you basically have 59.5% in stocks, 39.5% in, uh, in bonds, and you own 1% Bitcoin. 1%, right your return would have gone from 7.2 to 9.2. So 200 basis point increase in your returns. Now, these are numbers as of beginning of this year. So it's not By even- having a 1% exposure, you're saying. 1%. Of your portfolio. If that same 1% had gone to zero, so you lost all the money that you put in, that 1%, your 7.2% annualized return would have dropped to 7%. So you had a 200 basis point upside and a 20 basis point downside. downside. And so that type of 10 to one asymmetry, hmm. meaning that there, there's a 10% or a 10 X upside to a one X downside. That's the type of asymmetry that I look for. Because when you put a number of assets like that together in a portfolio, you actually reduce the risk, right? When you reduce the correlation in a portfolio, now all of a sudden you have asymmetric payoffs of a bunch of non-correlated assets. The overall risk of your portfolio goes down. And so one of the things that's counterintuitive when it comes to portfolio construction is 
everyone thinks that, okay, let's say that Bitcoin is super volatile, very risky, it's speculative. It's all, all the things that the kind of detractors would say. They use that argument as a reason to disqualify it from being included in a portfolio. Mm -hmm. But if you're a, a believer in kind of modern portfolio theory, actually by putting something that's super volatile and non-correlated into your portfolio, the overall portfolio risk goes down. It doesn't go up. And so that's another piece of this is not only do you have that 10 to one kind of upside to downside over the last five years, but also you would have been either keeping the risk profile the exact same with a really, really small allocation, or you could potentially drop the risk in the portfolio by adding this non-correlated asymmetric type asset. And so I just think that that was the, the kind of logic behind like get off zero. I don't care if you put you know, 25 basis points, or you put 25% of your net worth, that's up for, you know, the individual to decide getting off zero, don't have zero exposure, because this will ultimately make your portfolio stronger. And if it works out, the payoff is so asymmetric that you're going to be kicking yourself if you didn't have exposure to it. I want to touch on something, uh, Pop, you said, if it works out, you know, I, I know that's the question for everyone we're talking and it's interesting, because every article I read, and, and a lot of the dialogue we talk about in the, in this, in the sphere is all about the US market. And that we have, but we have amazing asset classes that are available to an American investor. Let's talk about like in a global, a global sense, the person that lives in a third world country that cannot buy Apple stock, cannot buy bonds and all this stuff. There, some places, Argentina, where pick pick the country, the the currency is becoming valueless, utterly valueless, disappearing day by day, 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 day by day. day. Yeah, the, the same hundred dollar buying power they had six months ago. Zimbabwe, is, is, Argentina, right. right? So, so what percentage of the globe? Where is the concentrate? Do we know? or have data of what the concentration of ownership is as a, as a portion of the globe? Like where's most of it owned? I'm going to give you one data point that is uh, an interesting comparison. And then we'll talk about Bitcoin. Facebook's user base, when I left in 2015, 84% of all users on Facebook were not in the United States. So these other technology products are mainly international. Android has 80% market share globally. Majority of their users are not in the United States, right? The US only has 330 million total population. That includes the oldest person to the youngest person. And so I think that naturally the internet has expanded the uh, kind of access to technology and products for people globally. Now, when it comes to Bitcoin, we see this, right? There are uh, kind of really hardcore kind of Bitcoin or crypto hubs in Zug, Switzerland, or in uh, Berlin, or in China, and Singapore, and Hong Kong, and Australia. You know, you just go down the line. Then you get into places like Venezuela, and even, you know, various places like uh, Iran or North Korea or whatever. All of these places are saying, listen, this is the sound money principles of gold now being applied in a digital format and anyone has access to it. And in that world, I need to have some exposure. And so naturally what you're seeing is a distribution similar to the distribution of population, right? It's really popular in China on an aggregate number of user bases. Why? They just got a shit ton of people, <laughs> right? Like, like naturally you're going to see lots of people um, kind of coming in. And so when you look at this, Bitcoin, if it was a stock, if Bitcoin was listed on the New York Stock Exchange, it would be the most popular stock in terms of the number of people who hold it. That's how much this stuff's been adopted. And then when you look at stats like the transaction volume occurring on Venmo, PayPal, or Apple Pay, 
all three things that here in the United States we think of as really popular and, and kind of cemented, Bitcoin's network did more transaction volume than each of those last year. So Bitcoin settled more transactions wow. on the actual network than PayPal, Venmo, or Apple Pay last year. And so when you start to realize this, you say, look, I don't see that many people in the United States going and buying you know, coffee with Bitcoin. Well, this is a global thing. And if you think about Apple Pay, Venmo, PayPal, they're not available in every country. There's 187 countries in the world, I think, right? And, and Apple Pay, Venmo, and PayPal are not available in all 187, but Bitcoin is. And so just by naturally having this kind of decentralized technology-enabled structure, accessibility goes through the roof for people globally. And that's where I think you're seeing a lot of uh, demand over the first 10 years was just individuals saying, I need this asset. Now what you get is you get the institutions coming in from all over the world, right? I, you know, I spend all day talking to people from uh, pension funds, endowments, hospital systems, insurance companies, all the way down the line. They're all looking at this. Many of them have already started to invest in it. Uh, and they're looking at it simply as it is going to be the best performer in the inflation hedge bucket. So out of real estate, gold, Bitcoin, et cetera, everyone's worried about governments around the world, not just the US Federal Reserve, everywhere around the world, printing lots and lots of money, trillions and trillions of dollars. They're going to move capital on the fear of inflation. Whether inflation actually occurs or not, doesn't matter. People fear the inflation. Capital will flow into inflation hedge assets. We're already seeing that. You couple that with low interest rate environment, right? Real estate explodes. Gold goes, and gold's up 25, 30% this year, right? Bitcoin's up 160% or whatever it is. And so naturally, Bitcoin, because it's a smaller market cap asset uh, and it's more volatile, it will, when everything goes up, it's just going to outperform in US dollar price standpoint. And I think that's why you see institutions kind of starting to get exposure. Bob, I have a question that you talked about, kind of, you know, you talked about the velocity of money and there's been so much printing and people are like, well, they printed a bunch of money and it hasn't really changed anything. And I say, well, everyone's been stuck in quarantine. Once the velocity of that money starts to increase and things get back to normal this even the first round of stimulus and potentially with this new administration a second round of five trillion dollar stimulus and then all of a sudden we get out of this covid and things get quote unquote back to normal the velocity of money increases and that's where potentially right you may see where this quantitative easing starts taking effect and the velocity increases therefore it goes on this hyperbolic inflation is that a possible scenario I think that there is a possibility we get like really, really egregious inflation. I don't think it's probable. And my mm. the way that I think through this is we live in a very deflationary time because of technology, right? Technology is constantly driving down cost of labor. It's driving down a lot of things. And so it has this natural deflationary aspect. We know that the government tries to target a 2% inflation target. They have been horrendous at hitting 2%, right? In the official numbers. In the unofficial numbers, they're way over 2%. But in the official numbers, they've only hit, I think, two out of the last 10 years, if I remember correctly. And so what they are now committing to is the Federal Reserve has been talking about having above 2% inflation for a persistent amount of time. So they're going to basically bring out all of the tools in the toolbox, and they're going to try to get over 2% inflation. Well, while they do that, whether they actually get there or not, I think that what people are looking at saying is, hey, we've seen this playbook before. We've seen what happened in Venezuela, Zimbabwe, Turkey recently. This game can't be played forever. And the U.S. has done probably one of the best jobs around the world in terms of actually not seeing hyperinflation mm -hmm. or kind of becoming undisciplined. At the same time, I think if I remember the number correctly, it's 55% of all U.S. dollars in circulation have been printed this year. Yes. 
55. I thought it was 25. Or 25. There's some, it's a big double it's digit percentage. It's a big number. Yeah. In, the, in the last six months, it's been 25% of all the world, all of the US currency has been printed in the last six months. Yes. So when you look at that, right, it, it, it says, okay, what is going on? And there's people who will argue that it doesn't matter. The national debt doesn't matter. Uh, we can basically monetize the debt whenever we want. We'll just keep printing more money. We'll devalue the currency. We'll use cheap currency to, buy, uh, to pay off the debt. And, and like everything will be just fine. That's great until it's not. And what I tell people is if you 100% believe the US dollar is going to fail and the US economy is going to just go into a dumpster fire and like it's over, cool. You should go put 100% of your wealth into, uh, into Bitcoin. I don't think that that's what's going to happen. And I think that a lot of other people who understand this stuff don't think that's what's going to happen. And so what you should do is you should put the amount of your portfolio that equates to the percentage chance you think that that could happen. So if you think there's a 1% chance of the US dollar failing and like the world you know, blowing up, then go put 1% of your assets in Bitcoin. That's hmm. your insurance policy. That's your chaos hedge. That's your, you know, uh, Chamath would call it like your schmuck insurance. But if you think there's a 5% chance of that happening, you should probably go put 5% of your portfolio. If you're at 50-50 and you're really worried, eh, maybe you should go put 50%. But I think that understanding like this isn't a binary, like I take all my dollars and convert all of them to Bitcoin. It's more so, you know, again, get off zero. And the other piece of it is once you actually start to accumulate a little bit of Bitcoin, you'll start paying attention uh -huh. and you'll start learning about it, right? I, I always love talking to doctors and lawyers because doctors and lawyers are the best like Apple analysts or Amazon analysts in the world. I mean, they, they literally will sit there and they'll tell you all about Tesla's EV battery uh, supply chain or whatever. It's because they've got money invested and they're smart people, right? And they go and they spend the time learning about this stuff. It's the funny you say that, Pump. It's funny you say that, you know, the people that I've talked to, colleagues who have, who've asked my advice, because, you know, some people know I'm involved. I said, look, regardless of what happens, one of the joys of my life has been that I got exposed to the asset, but my education increased surrounding it from a macro level, from a geopolitical level, from looking at gold, looking at how things. So I became a better investor at scale simply because I dug in and I went down the, the rabbit hole or the wormhole of Bitcoin. It made me more intelligent, I think, as a someone uh, that's managing the money that I've accrued in my career. And it's been fascinating. I think that, I think to your point, the doctors and the dentists kind of, I think being intelligent and they love digging in. We love research. I think we're engineers at heart. I think digging in and when you finally look at this immaculate conception of Bitcoin, this mathematical invention of Bitcoin, and you see that the merits that it has, that's when all of a sudden you go, holy shit. And it's, and it blows yeah, your mind. So for me, I, I, I'm surprised to hear the, the conversation. And again, I don't, I don't consume a lot of uh, crypto content. So this is news to me. That's an interesting parallel to figure out what percentage of the US uh -huh. dollar crashing and then as a hedge. Tell me in my pea-sized brain about this. Tell me, this is what I think of and just and rip this apart. I think of Bitcoin because I've heard it said it's gold 2.0. So if the store of if value for gold is whatever the hell it is, trillions of dollars and, and gold is something, if I go to Starbucks, it's, in, it's impossible for me to carve off a shaving of gold to buy my latte. Right. And, and I know, and, and again, I'm, I'm, I'm probably making a complete fool of myself in front of you guys right now, but I'm just, so, so the utility of gold, I can't like send it to Peter. I don't know who the fuck is holding it right now. Like cross gold. borders with it. Hardly. Yeah. Or yeah. Or whatever it is. And, and I, I look at it like, okay, if gold is worth X and I, I read somewhere that if, if Bitcoin becomes gold, a better gold, gold with greater utility and more security, then each Bitcoin would be worth like 
500,000, 700,000. I mean, whatever the number is. So Are you talking from a, from a, from a market cap perspective? Yes. So okay. if, if the world believes, cause money's just consensus, you know, uh, you, you may have a collectible car and I think it's a piece of shit. And then the other guys like, Oh my God, that's the most rare GTO I've ever seen and whatever. And that that's worth 300 grand. So it's just consensus. So that you talked about Facebook and, and I look at it like the more people like, and this is stuff I've just heard everybody that every day that Bitcoin exists is a huge success because if it doesn't implode or have an existential meltdown of some sort, it becomes more, it has greater consensus. And if the consensus builds over time, my thought is that it should be the value of gold. And if it right. turns- Right, if 4 billion people say it is, then it right. is. Then is that it what is. Saying, Craig? Yeah, okay. it is, it. correct. It's whatever the populace says. And if mm -hmm. the world has a consensus that it's the value of gold, then it's 500 grand. And if it's at 20 grand or 18 grand now, it's going to 500 grand, holy shit. Like, I don't, even if I think there's a 0% chance of the world economy collapsing, like that's my argument, but just, just tear that apart and tell me why the, I'm yeah, wrong with so that. Here's a couple of key pieces. So gold right now, eight, nine trillion dollars, right? Bitcoin where it is, um, absolutely, I think is going to uh, not only match the gold market cap, right? Let's call uh, Bitcoin's at about 350, $360 billion in market cap, gold's at eight or nine trillion it will be much, much bigger. And the way that I always frame this for people is name to me one thing that existed in the analog world that a digital version was created and the analog version is still bigger than the digital version. Nothing. Bookstores, right? Like think of bookstores and then Amazon. Amazon is drastically bigger than any one bookstore or chain of bookstores or the entire analog bookstore industry, right? Amazon is bigger. Mail so email. There's nothing. No one wants to, no course. one reminisces. Of course you just go down the line. And so the digital version is always bigger than the analog version. And so when you look at that, it may take a long time to play out, but the other piece of this is what is gold's entire value built on? It's built on the idea of scarcity and it's a narrative driven value meaning that we've told everyone it's scarce, it's scarce, it's scarce. I don't have gold growing in my ground. Somebody else does. It must be scarce. That narrative has persisted for thousands of years. Now, though, Bitcoin comes along and you no longer have to believe a story. You no longer have to believe a narrative. You know because it is provable. And so anytime you can take something from a narrative to provable, because mm -hmm. you can literally show it, it will be worth way more because now people can have a higher degree of confidence because it can be proven rather than just hear the story. And so the my favorite thing I've heard recently about this is Naval Ravikant tweeted uh, and he said, to those born after Bitcoin was created, Bitcoin is as old as gold. Oh my God. What is the difference between it having 5,000 years or having 10 years if if it, they both were created before you. So you, the three of us, we remember a world before Bitcoin. Yeah. To a kid being born today, they don't, it's all the same. They don't care. Was it started in 2010 or in, you know, BC, right? Yeah. Like it doesn't matter. It's just, this has been around for a long time. And so I think that you've got to remember this idea that like young people do not agree with the narrative of buying rocks that came out of the ground, right? That's just not happening. Well, they and, just, in general, the new generation just has a contempt for the narrative of all sorts. 
They don't they want grew to be... up with this in their hand. They right. grew up with a phone in their hand. They are digitally native. Every single asset that they engage with is digital. I don't know if you guys have seen, there's a YouTube channel where there's these two young kids. They've got to be probably, uh, I don't know, like mid to late teenagers, I think. And they sit and all they do is they listen to old music. Oh yes, right? I've seen it in the two. Yeah, and they're so they awesome. Just there, they're, and they're just trying to like vibe with it. And they uh, and they played Phil Collins, right? Yes, like, in the air tonight, right? remember that? Or the drums? And they went wild. And they were just like, damn, you know, like like basically, I, like, oh, I like this shit, right? <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. When and the drum hits, they're like, it. oh shit. And and it was like, oh my god, these young kids are discovering great music, right? Like like all these older people had this nostalgia. But these young well, kids look at like, Fleetwood Mac every- with that dude drinking the cranberry. Like yeah. that's a that's a beautiful song. Like all of Fleetwood Mac's, you know, dreams. Those are great songs, and everybody's rediscovering. Like Fleetwood was like up, being his record is going back up to the charts again. Of course. So I think that what ends up happening is like if Bitcoin becomes the market cap of gold. So we go from three hundred fifty billion, let's say, to eight nine trillion. Uh, like yes, twenty five x right. Am I, yeah, my, my math would right? would then be valued at about five hundred thousand dollars. Okay, right. So it's about twenty five x from here. I personally believe over a long period of time, and literally, I think it'll be a decade or more. Bitcoin will eclipse the gold market cap. And when I and when I think through that, it's not going to be a straight line from here to ten trillion. Let's call it. It's going to include incredible boom cycles, bust cycles. It's going to be super volatile. And so what I always tell people is. You've got to have a long time horizon with this thing. Do not try to day trade it. Do not think that you're smarter than the market, all this kind of stuff. Just think of Bitcoin as an accumulation game, similar to 150 years ago, 500 years ago, when people just accumulated gold and they saved it. And that's what their wealth was built on. This is the same game. And the people who have the discipline Mm. and a really long time horizon and the patience are going to win the game. And so when you think of that, Name an asset that has such a clear path to 25 or more X over a 10-year period. There's just not that many of them. Bitcoin has been compounding at over 35% annual compound growth rate since it was created. It's incredible. So so then- so then it really has nothing to do with the get off the zero. What percentage chance is the U.S. economy going to falter? Because if we if you really believe that, that it will it will reach the at least the market cap of gold. That means we have a 25 percent, you know, compounded growth. I mean, it's going to go 25 X. I mean, how how could anybody not want to participate in that? That's so alluring. You know, that's my, that's my thought. I never thought of it in the context of the devaluing dollar. And, and Peter actually pushed back on me. I'm sure it's regurgitated content from you because that's why he appears so smart. Is he said, I said, well, when are you going to convert it? He's like, no, 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 Craig, you're missing the point. You're never converting it back. Well, I said, think of it a scenario where like, he's like, well, what, what point do you convert back to dollars? Yeah, I was like, like, what, what if I buy Bitcoin? my beach house in Bitcoin? And he's like, oh, shit. What well, I, and then, and then, pay, then a couple months back. later, then a couple months later, PayPal with 348 million users on the bottom, everybody has a PayPal account, go scroll down to the bottom right now, look at the bottom of your screen, it's going to blow you away when you see it, it says crypto, you can buy it there. So it's mm-hmm. like the access, the barrier to entry, I mean, when you did this four years ago, you had to be some sort of like, crazy, like, computer with like a revenge of the nerds in the, in the basement with a supercomputer and a bunch of blinking lights. Now you got PayPal 348 million people can buy it right now. And you know, I'm sure 
that that is going to be the utility of they're going to be i know they're saying they're not trading it now but if i could send paypal to my friend in, in italy right now why can't i send them crypto yeah, look, it, it ultimately is going to be where is the most utility, right? And in terms of uh, utility, I don't think there's very many things that are more um, kind of valuable than, uh, than Bitcoin and crypto. And you're seeing this with stable coins have exploded in usage. You see Bitcoin exploded in usage. And really what we're watching is natural technology adoption curve, right? The market is speaking, the market is adopting something. And there's a lot of people who, um, you know, will say, uh, we shouldn't have this, this is not going to work, whatever. I tend to like to think that I'm not smarter than the market. And if the market's adopting something and the market is saying this is valuable, then the market's usually right. And I'm going to be the one that's wrong if I fight the market, right? And so I think that that is you know, you know, pretty compelling right now is just to watch that adoption occur. And if you think you know something more than uh, Stanley Druckenmiller or Paul Tudor Jones or you know whoever, good luck. Right. That's <laughs> right. been a cool thing is watching some of these just badass, you know, legendary investors yeah. come out and say, you know what, maybe I was wrong. Pomp, in closing, I don't want to keep you. I know you've got tons of stuff today. I know you're visiting in South Florida and thank you for taking the time. But can you talk? Can you just give a kind of a short thing to the, the haters, right? There's some well, existential, the existential, yeah. existential threats that people will will push back on sometimes. That, and there's, even if, there's so much media, by the way, Peter, about like why Bitcoin is terrible. Like here's the 10 reasons why it's terrible. Remember the rat, rat poison squared, all that shit. So yeah, I mean, can you give some, you know, real quick, and I don't want to keep you because you've already gifted us with enough of your time, but can you, can you talk on that just really quickly? Look, everything has a risk, right? I mean, five years ago, who would have thought that Facebook would have an antitrust suit and uh, potentially be broken up? Of course, there's risk with everything, but I tend to think that the one advantage that Bitcoin has is a decentralized system. You can't call CEO in front of Congress. You can't put them in jail. You can't go to their headquarters and shut their business down. There's no one server where the code resides that you can just go and, and take and offline. And if a government wants to ban ownership or usage of this asset, especially if it's the United States, you better believe that China, Russia, and every other superpower in the world is going to immediately run and adopt it because they're trying to get off the US dollar system, right? The greatest advantage that the United States has is the United States has the global reserve currency, and we've gone around the world and we've weaponized it. We've weaponized it against our adversaries, and we've weaponized it to protect our allies. And so if you want to open the door to a really bad situation, ban it, take away ownership, right? Ban companies from doing it. But what you're going to see is people are going to leave the United States. They're going to go elsewhere because we now live in this virtual world, right? Where people can basically do all this stuff. And then on top of that, you're going to see these other countries run to adopt it because they're going to realize there's an opening for them to basically get off the U.S. dollar system. And so I tend to think that kind of cooler heads will prevail. There's a lot of smart people. There's congressmen who not only hold Bitcoin, but are actively talking about it, saying this is a, an important technology. We need to adopt it. There's now a senator that holds Bitcoin, is out giving interviews and talking about this, right? Who is that? Do you know, Paul? Uh, senator Cynthia Loomis, right? Yeah, Cynthia Loomis is the cool. uh, senator. Um, Warren Davidson, Tom Emmer, there's a bunch of them. Uh, wow. in, in Kelly Lawfer, et cetera. And then uh, on top of that, you basically are going to have within the next 10 years, you're going to start to have people who are quote unquote Bitcoiners or crypto enthusiasts. 
that are going to ascend to positions of power. They're going to be the CIOs at institutions. They're going to be the heads of banks and, and financial organizations. They're going to be in positions of political power. And so very quickly, what you're going to see is you're going to see this entire thing, whether it's from an investment standpoint, a regulation standpoint, or just an adoption standpoint, go from a contrarian idea to a consensus idea. And when you shift from a contrarian idea to a consensus idea, those who had exposure to the asset before that transition are usually rewarded handsomely. And I think that's what's going to play out here. I have an incredible amount of my net worth tied up in this thing uh, because I fundamentally believe that it will be the next global reserve currency. Uh, it's just going to take a long time for that to happen. And I've got a very long time horizon. That's that awesome. Is awesome. That's awesome. Thank you so much for this time. So, so for the listener who's intrigued, um, what's the jumping off point for them to learn more and consume your content? I know you've got a podcast newsletter. Let's talk His about newsletter that. is awesome. I actually subscribe to it, Pomp. It's great. It's a nice three minute. I'll let you describe it, but I would encourage you all. And what do you charge like 50 bucks for the year or something like that? Yep. Yeah. yeah look, I, I write this email every morning. Uh, somehow three years later, I'm still writing it every morning. Um, it's just pompletter.com. And I basically just try to explain uh, kind of my opinion, right? You can read the news anywhere. There's a million sites that'll cover the news, but just my personal opinion on kind of what's happening. And sometimes it's, you know, very, very specific to Bitcoin. Other times it might be more kind of macro economy uh, and the impact on real estate or stocks or whatever, mm -hmm. but, but it's trying to just, you know, one, almost be a, uh, a journal to some degree for me in, in understanding what am I thinking at the time, but also to trying to kind of get people up the learning curve in a very short period, you know, every morning, kind of three to five minutes or so, so that they can quickly just understand like, hey, here's what's going on in the world. And here's an opinion. Maybe it's wrong. Maybe it's right. But over time, I think people just start to realize like, here's the perspective I have of the world and people are still, uh, still reading. So I'll keep writing. Yeah. And, and also and your podcast, you know, uh, to our listeners, you know, it's a great podcast. I, uh, it's one of the, you know, I have 20 that I subscribe to and probably only three that I listen to on a regular and, and I wait for, uh, I wait for the pump the pop podcast to come out with new stuff. Sometimes it's over, over my head. Sometimes it's like, hey, this is a little bit, this is in the weeds, but a lot of times it's very interesting information. And like I said, I alluded to before, Bitcoin and cryptocurrency has taught me a lot about kind of the halo effect has kind of taught me a lot about other environments that coexist because nothing lives in a, in a silo by itself, right? Political worldly things. So anyway, Craig, what were you going to say? And then we'll, no, we'll I, I, just, I didn't want to open up another tangent, but I, you know, and I'll ask you this offline, Peter, but maybe just a quick, a quick answer to this. Cause I don't want to open up another, another conversation, but over the last two years, pop, and I haven't been consuming your content that long. Have you stayed the course? You still feel as bullish, more bullish, less bullish. Has you, have, have you shifted over the last two years? Yeah, I mean, it's probably a good time to say it. So uh, everyone knows that I was pretty bullish. Um, and then in uh, December of 2018, Bitcoin had dropped all the way down to uh, about $3,200. I took 50% of my net worth and put it in Bitcoin. And so, you know, I always joke that like, I wasn't the guy on uh, on Silk Road who, um, you know, mined a bunch of Bitcoin and, and kind of just held on to it or whatever. I made a very conscious decision that involved incredible risk, but also incredible upside for me personally. Um, obviously, that's uh, that's done pretty well. And then uh, earlier this year, during uh, kind of the heart of the pandemic, when uh, I really kind of wrapped my head around what was happening, I took that from 50% in that initial allocation up to uh, over 90%. Wow. And, you know, look, it's working out, which is great. And there's people joining you, like Raul Paul, like, you know, he's at like 98%. And like, these are not, these are highly, highly intelligent people who understand the world at scale. And so, you know, when you hear, when you hear those numbers, and, and so you're, 
to answer your question, Craig, conviction got, has gotten got stronger. Got it. Got it. Got it. That's <laughs> I, awesome. I, I would say, look, you can listen to what I say, but like, you know, <laughs> watch what I do. Watch what I do with my money and yeah, uh, yeah. everything you need to know. That's All right. awesome. That's well, awesome. Pop, thank you so much, everyone. I hope you uh, enjoyed this. And uh, yeah, I can't thank you enough for your time. You're a busy man. And um, this has been, this has been awesome. I've been looking forward to this podcast probably more than uh than many any other podcast yeah, any well, other podcast like literally seven true. days pop. i was like seven days to pop my friends, my, friends tomorrow. Hated, my friends have hated me like the past four years like dude will you shut up about this i'm like but 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 well peter's you know, begged all me all you have to say is uh i've got my younger brothers and uh and they're in uh into bitcoin now all their friends they just say hey scoreboard just check the scoreboard. Uh, <laughs> that's well. I have said that to Craig many times. Luckily, he's taken my advice along the way. And oh then, no, uh, it took me so long. Peter begged me, he's like, "Bro, please, just put X dollars." I'm like, "No, fuck you, man." He's like, "No, please, please, you can afford this," and I was not doing it. And then he finally, did it, but I he did finally it. did it. So yeah. anyway, awesome, Pop, good guy, man. Best of luck to you, and uh, yeah, look forward to, to meeting you in person one day, man. Absolutely. Thank you, Thank you guys so much for having me. Right, Thanks man. for being here.